0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Those lights that are, that are just shooting out from the Lincoln Memorial
1: uh, along the reflecting pool. It, I look, it's like almost uh, extensions of Joe Biden's arms embracing America. It was a moment where the new president came to town and sort of convened the country
0: in this moment of remembrance, uh, outstretching his arms. The 46th president of the United States, putting his soul into his first address. He gave the kind of inaugural address our presidents used to give, as hopeful as the man delivering it. We saw the steely determination and
2: compassion of President Joe Biden. What a great love story between Jill Biden and Joe Biden. And we haven't had a love story in the White House in four years.
0: And no, that was not a Lenny Riefenstahl moment gushing about the government but rather a very new and different corporate media approach to covering hard news during this new Biden administration and here to field questions regarding that somewhat surreal turn of events on our Arts Express hot seat this week is MSNBC chief legal correspondent and news correspondent host Ari Melber says melber with regard to the emotional versus professional in covering news quote, If we're covering ISIS, I don't know that I need to pretend that I have no feeling or reaction to ISIS. Indeed, I think that would be a little weird, a little ridiculous. Melbourne, as MSNBC's chief legal correspondent and analyst, will also discuss his coverage of the Trump impeachment proceedings regarding his perspective and approach. And as a First Amendment practicing lawyer, What's up with the corporate social media crackdown in progress against both the right and the left? Here's Ari Melber.
3: Hey, Ari Melber here.
0: Hi, good morning.
3: Great to be with you.
0: Now, you're covering the Trump impeachment proceedings. What can you say about that and your perspective and approach?
3: I think that it's very serious when you have of violent insurrection against the government, whether it happened on the first or last day of someone's tenure. Uh, And we know these people were summoned to Washington by then-President Trump, and we know he demanded they go march on the Capitol. So the, the evidence and the facts of this case are far narrower and clearer than many other impeachments or other types of trials. You know the insurrection happened, you know they were Trump's fans, you know to some degree In broad strokes, they were responding to Trump. So the only substantive question is, did he knowingly and directly incite the violence we all saw, or is there some other argument, defense, or evidence that he talks this way, he pushed them, but he didn't really literally think they should attack officers and lead to deaths and literally hang his vice president? Uh, So on the substance, that's the narrow question. We also will cover, as with any trial, where the juror is headed. And right now, it's such a political process, uh, you have some of these Senate jurors on the Republican side publicly uh, criticizing the trial, but it's still a dynamic process because if they were so sure it was going to go down in flames, maybe they would confidently just move on to other things. There seems to be an effort to publicly campaign against it, to try to make sure that everyone's against it, because if there was too much pressure on them to convict, they would be caught in a harder choice. So, I think we have to be careful in not getting ahead of where it's at. We haven't even really started the trial part.
0: And you also spent four years practicing First Amendment law. So what would you say about the current uproar from both the right and the left regarding censorship sweeps on the social media platforms?
3: I think censorship is an enduring problem in American life, uh, whether you define it narrowly by the government doing something against our speech and our rights. Uh, which is where most First Amendment law resides, or more broadly, and what I think people are concerned about, even if it's not technically unconstitutional, which is what happens when powerful forces, sometimes more globally powerful in some ways than a government, um, make unilateral, unchecked decisions about about things, because it doesn't really matter whether you agree with the most recent decision. Um, that's just oh do i like or not like that speaker maybe is how some people look at it um but the deeper censorship question is are you are you okay is it good for society to have those decisions made by so few unaccountable people i mean really less accountable than the government when you get down to it uh and so i would encourage folks not to think about it as um do you hate donald trump's tweets or not <laughs> but in the long run, who should make these decisions, and should they be unchecked? And if there is going to be a rule book, are they going to tell us what it is in advance? Because um, while there may be valid reasons to restrict, um, restrict, block, or or, or even ban um, any any content encouraging violence, right? In the in the Trump case. Um, they didn't do it before he lost the race. They didn't do it over the last four years. And there's very little evidence they would have done it had he won reelection. So to the extent that what Twitter did was follow some other power and not apply their own rules, that I think is bad for having really free flowing speech, even if one agrees with some of those calls.
0: And what are your thoughts about the reactions right now to the media that may be understandably elated personally about Trump's departure? but criticism that the enthusiasm has crossed the line from neutral professionalism into the personal, and a staffer who was just fired from the New York Times for what was considered an overenthusiastic reaction against Trump that was accused of crossing the line of professional journalistic neutrality?
3: Um, well, I guess first I should ask, do you know exactly what they said? Because I'm, I'm not sure I know that example.
0: Well, it was on Twitter where this woman, she's an editor there, and she said, oh, great, he's gone, and, you know, they just felt that was not professional behavior for someone who works for the New York Times.
3: Yeah, I think those are hard questions. I mean, number one, people have to be fair and objective in the work they do. So if you share too much other stuff, um, they may be worried that that undermines the perception of, of objectivity for their readers, which is a, t- a tough call. The way I look at it and the work we do, speaking for myself, because I obviously don't speak for the Times, would be, we have to prove to the audience that we are fair in the journalism we're doing. And that's regardless of a personal feeling or value structure that that anyone may have, or people that even work on my show may have, that I don't even know necessarily what they might think about everything unless they choose to share it, which they don't have to. So, you know, to 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 pick a very extreme example outside the U.S., if we're covering ISIS, we might have strong feelings about ISIS they're murdering Americans and journalists, and they do horrific things. I don't know that I need to pretend that I have no feeling or reaction to ISIS. And Indeed, I think that'd be a little weird, a little ridiculous. Um, but I certainly need to be careful that the, any feelings I may have don't infect the work I do, the reporting I do, the, the fact-checking. And if ISIS is doing, quote-unquote, well in a battle, I better be able to report that accurately and not hate them so much that I can't tell the accurate story. Now, that may sound more extreme than even what we're dealing with here, but it's the same concept, which is, how do you do your job? And I think what The Times or others may be dealing with is, oh, if people share these feelings, folks think, assume, or may be right to assume that that applies to the work they're doing. Hopefully it doesn't, right? The fact that you might see ISIS lose the battle and exhale and feel good about it shouldn't change your ability to count and fact-check and do your job.
0: And I think we have time for one more question. How do you go about channeling your two on-air endeavors as a legal expert and covering the news? And do these two ever pose a challenge or conflict for you with one another?
3: You know, that's a great question. I don't get asked that very often. I think that the overlap is a good lawyer can understand both sides and opposing ideas and evidence without feeling confused or angry, which can happen in the mind when you look at conflicting things. So a good lawyer, the lawyers that I learned from, were, were really able to do that and then also tell a story. And so I think some of that part of the brain is similar to what you aspire to do in, in journalistic storytelling. If there is a tension there, I think it's that, um, while, while we want to be fair, we just discussed that, when you're anchoring a story, you can make all sorts of judgments about how much credence to give something. So in one one story, you may cover both sides really deeply. In another, you may say, here's the story. Here's their defense in fairness or rebuttal. But we're not playing a ton of that rebuttal. We need to move on because here's why. And that's an that's a editorial choice. But if you're covering, say, Bill Cosby's trial, you're not really legally supposed to go, you know, 95% prosecution, 5% defense, right? Whereas a different person telling the story of what happened there allegedly or what was, he was convicted, so what legally he was convicted of, they might spend a lot more time in what I'm not, you know, what I'm referring to as not 50-50. And I think that can be tricky because people might look at you as a legal reporter or whatever and think, well, wait a minute, why are you giving so much credence, so much time to that? And I think that's, I understand where those questions come from, but when I cover trials and those kind of things, you know, that's a little different than the normal, normal, just general news.
0: Okay, well, thank you so much, Ari Melber, for calling into our show. Thanks, Perry. And next up on Arts Express.
3: Can we just talk? Can we just talk? talk about the we're going. Before
4: we get lost. Let the thoughts. Can't get where
1: we're without knowing. I've never felt like this before.
5: I apologize if I'm moving too far. Can we just talk?
6: To out where we're Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Well, everyone's all aflutter these days with our newly elected overlords, and far be it from me to burst anyone's bubble. I mean, what fun is it having enemies if you can't beat up on them and blame them for all the country's ills? Of course, our unelected overlords still continue apace, but... Today, I want to talk about a different level of reality that remains largely unspoken. So, excuse me, but the one incontrovertible fact about life in these United States, regardless of who is ruling, is this. The standard of living that we enjoy in the U.S., again, regardless of who holds office, is built on the misery, torture, destruction, exploitation, and killing of millions of people around the world. That simple fact is really the centerpiece of our daily existence. It's a fairly impossible fact to live with. You may have even felt a little friction rising in your body as you listened to these words. I apologize. How could we wake up every morning and function with that on our shoulders, Now, this is not going to be a political rant. Instead, what I'm curious about here is how do people psychically cope with such knowledge? And so I am here to bring you the official Arts Express Child's Garden of Denial, which is simply a catalog of 10 various strategies used to cope with this central fact of our existence. it's my contention that the style of denial a person chooses determines whether one is a conservative, fascist, neoliberal, liberal, socialist, communist, anarcho-feminist, libertarian, pacifist, etc., or combination thereof. And yes, certainly vice versa is true as well. One's political stance determines one's denial technique. In this little fireside chat, I will catalog ten varieties of attempting to cope via denial. So without further ado, The Arts Express, Child's Garden of Denial. Let's start off with one of the cruder strategies, outright rejection. Misery, torture, destruction, exploitation, and killing of millions of people around the world? You're lying. No one's dying, at least not to make my life better. Of course, in an internet age where we're flooded with information, it is a bit harder to deny outright the fact of these atrocities occurring. So the alternate there is, well, even if it is happening, those people are better off on the whole. They should be grateful we brought them democracy, civilization, and honey mustard Pringles. Well, that's a pretty crude denial strategy and it's really becoming less and less acceptable and really won't allow you to make it through a Hollywood cocktail party. So more sophisticated denials have evolved. Now here's a denial I call, life is a game. Well, it's unfortunate, yes, sad people die, bad things happen, but that's life. Life is a game and in any game there are winners and losers and the losers haven't done enough to become winners. This is what life is, unfortunately. No one said that life is fair. Who knows, maybe tomorrow the whole thing will be turned around and you'll be on top and I'll be on the ground. I doubt it, but who knows? Crazier things have happened. Meanwhile, who told you to stop licking my boots? Then there's the family-is-everything denial. Life is hard enough as it is. I can't worry about others. I can't change the world. Right now I can only worry about myself and my family. Justin! Would you get your sister's head out of the washing machine? So don't be talking to me about people starving halfway around the world. I don't even know if the Chinese restaurant delivers today. And number four, here's a favorite of liberals, the the as-the-world-turns denial. Things will turn out all right in the end. The world is evolving slowly in the right direction. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, patience. Wake me up when everything is better. (laughs) And then there's the poor little me denial. Oh yes, there is so much injustice in the world, but the world is so big and I am so small and oh la la little me, I do not have the power to change things. I will now roll myself up into a little ball and make myself even smaller and more inconspicuous. Hey, and here's one form of denial I'm gonna call the I'm on the case denial. Yeah, absolutely. There's a ton of injustice in the world, and I'm on the case. I tweeted out 46 tweets today on Twitter before 7 a.m., attended 17 demonstrations by 8 a.m., and all the radios and computers in my house are simultaneously tuned to the five Pacifica stations. Free the WBAI LSB 24. Then there's the not-my-department denial. Uh, what do I think about what's happening? Oh, I'm I'm not a political person. Uh, what do I think about Joan Strikes? Uh, I told you I'm not a political person. Uh, what do I think about racism? Look, I told you I'm not a political person and if you keep bothering me, I'm gonna call the cops on you. Next is the pretty please denial, also known as the Mr. Rogers' wonderful day in the neighborhood denial. It's true, the world can be an upsetting place, but only if we were kinder and more civil to one another and asked our politicians for our needs more courteously, the world's problems could be solved. Jair Bolsonaro, President Duterte, Bibi Netanyahu, and neo-Nazis of the world, won't you be my neighbor. Then there's what I call the beardstroker denial. And despite the name, either gender can participate. Yes, the world situation is quite terrible. What is to be done? Well, if we study long enough and deeply enough to try to understand, then we can change things. As soon as I finish reading the 95 volumes of Marx and the 452 volumes of Lenin here on my nightstand, I'll be ready to take on the revolution. But first, comrades, I hope you have read and digested my 1,000-page pamphlet denouncing your 500-page pamphlet denouncing my 2,000-page pamphlet so that we may then, and only then, proceed further. And last but not least, number 10, Finally, the artiste denial. Nobody can live and function with the knowledge of our own complicity in such cruelty. I got it. I'm a creative person. I'll write a blog post about styles of denial and then record it for the radio. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Here to remind you that denial is not just a river in Egypt.
0: And the music you've been listening to is Talk by Khalid, Peaceful by Yakov Goma, and Denial by Gloria Tells. And coming up next on the show, in our continued coverage of the current Black Renaissance in film, joining us on Arts Express are the co-directors of Antebellum, Gerard Bush and Christopher Wrenz, in which a Black activist, author played by Janelle Monet finds herself transported into captivity as a plantation slave on the eve of the U.S. Civil War, and among the many remarkable features of Antebellum is a tribute to activist in Cuban exile Asada Shakur in a Hollywood movie. Says African-American filmmaker Bush, of his passion for this project, quote, the vestiges of the past are all around us, for me i need to look no further than my name bush with what the experiences must have been for my ancestors because that brand is with us always first some scenes from antebellum then gerard bush followed by christopher Wren's, and their house pet occasionally interjecting as well
6: Sapphires are here to fulfill your every need. Wherever you were before, that's over. That's over.
1: You are my only way out of here. We must choose a moment wisely.
4: one What is your emergency?
0: Our show. Uh,
2: well, thank you for having us. Yep.
0: Okay. Now, how do you feel your film is critical during the present moment and time in this country, with both racism and the Capitol Hill insurrection crisis converging, though you could not have anticipated the latter while making a movie?
2: Um, this is Gerard. Uh, I would say that, you know, it, it, there's there's a mixed feeling about it, because obviously we would like to see the country in a better place in the middle of a global pandemic than where we're at. But unfortunately, when we started writing the film in uh, what was it 2018, um, we could have predicted that we were headed down this road. The, the word antebellum, as defined by Webster's, is the period before a Civil War, uh, specifically the American Civil War, and the question that we were posing to the audience is it's up to us as a country to decide whether that this antebellum version is of the past or indicates uh, the period that we're on the brink of the new American Civil War.
0: Now, have you heard reactions from Janelle Monet about being part of this story and these characters? What it felt to her personally to play these characters? You know,
2: Janelle, for for Janelle, the the, the process and being a part of the project, she was really motivated by ancestry um, and the overwhelming um, feeling that this was a project that she should align herself with. Um, And so it was a part of of our job in collaboration to make sure that we delivered uh, on the script as as difficult um, and as challenging as some of those moments may be, but to deliver them on the screen. We have that responsibility to all of our uh, artists that, that joined this journey with us.
0: Now, you've said that one important inspiration for your film is, quote, we need to stop living in the past. We need to stop lying to ourselves about the past. Please elaborate.
2: I think that we have been in a situation where um, we have gone out of our way to protect a very specific segment of white America from the truth. Black America and brown America has always known the truth. But in even in Hollywood, how over so many years, the industry went out of its way uh, to present a certain image of what America is or was to the American public. Um, you need to look no further than Gone with the Wind or any John Wayne film. Uh, there's this idea about um, the great white savior and what America was and, and, and what it is. And it's simply not true. It's, it's a lie. And until we can get to this place where we can tell ourselves the truth about the fact that the country was built on the backs of stolen uh, bodies and free forced labor, um, it starts with that. And when we can have that conversation and really look at it for what it is, then perhaps we have some hope of getting to a place where we can have real unity and, and understanding and reconciliation. But until then, we just find ourselves uh, in this, this state of limbo, of deja vu, or Groundhog's Day, where we continue to just repeat the same issues and problems over and over and over because we're not confronting the truth.
5: This is Christopher. I would just add to that, um, that we see that there's uh, an attempt at softening our history and and making it more palatable for everyone. This can be seen in, you know, in, in textbooks for children, calling enslaved people, workers who came from Africa. It can even be seen by Bill Barr likening wearing a mask to slavery, which is just insane, but it speaks to, you know, an attempt to... Often, this history and it also speaks to the lack of, of education that, that we receive as a nation as to what our real history is. And it's a, and it and it and it's a it's
2: not benign. Um, it's a it's a very deliberate and calculated um, whitewashing and miseducating of the American public.
0: Now, I understand there's a really interesting story behind how the idea for this film came about. Please tell the listeners.
2: Well, uh, shortly after, well, shortly before moving to Los Angeles, um, I had experienced um, a series of really unfortunate events uh, in terms of of family members suddenly passing. Uh, And my father died, uh, and I was having some, some real issues with just my feelings about that, Uh, And I had a really disturbing nightmare. And in that nightmare, I witnessed this woman, Eden, um, who we see in the film. And it felt like she was so desperate to reach help that she was communicating with me across dimensions. Uh, And so when I got up from the nightmare, which was 3 o'clock in the morning, I wrote down all of the finer points. And the next day... Christopher and I discussed it. Uh, and then that's when we put pen to paper and wrote the short story, understanding that the short story, we, we did not necessarily or at all uh, intend on making that into a film. Mm. Uh, it was, we just, we have tremendous respect for the written word and, and we had been writing for publications in the past and we thought, okay, well, this will be uh, a really interesting contribution to the political conversation. Uh, And then we connected with Zeb Foreman, who eventually became the lead producer on the film. Uh, And that's when we wrote the script that would eventually become Antebellum.
0: And aside from your nightmare, why did you decide to make your protagonist a woman?
2: Well, uh, because we believe, I believe in staying true to the source material. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, and the, the nightmare was delivered to me with Eden. She was the character. She was the person that was having this experience, and so um, the truth is the easiest thing to remember, <laughs> and I, I just wanted to stick to what I knew and what I, I could remember about all of the details of that nightmare. It felt authentic and real, and what I needed to do, that we had a responsibility to however this art was seated, that we stayed true to that source material, which was that nightmare.
0: Now, at one point, your protagonist, Veronica, quotes Assata Shakur. Why was it important to you to include that inspirational quote?
2: Well, we were actually toggling between two because we also had um, Barbara Jordan, um, who's from my home state of Texas, that we were going to um, use the American dream need not forever be deferred. Um, and then we landed on Shakur because it made perfect sense in metaphor, about um, the chains, that it it is us that have to make that decision to to unchain ourselves, to stop ignoring
5: the truth. The well, only thing, the only thing we have to lose are our chains.
0: And please explain your inclusion of the William Faulkner opening quote: "The past is never dead; it's not even past."
2: Uh, that quote really uh, defines the film Um, because again we find ourselves uh, it's easy to fall into the seduction that we have uh, repaired uh, the fissures between us from the past when the vestiges of the past are all around us and omnipresent. For me uh, personally Uh, I I need to look no further than my surname to reacclimate and familiarize myself with what the experiences must have been for my ancestors. Because that brand is with us always. And so that is just a part of what, what we were meaning with that quote.
0: And would you say there's a black renaissance breaking out in the film world right now? And black filmmakers challenging cultural apartheid? and telling stories their way?
2: I think that um, black filmmakers, we have decided that we should have agency over our own lives and stories, and that we won't be deterred from doing this work by over-policing of what black art should look like, what subject matters we are allowed to explore and how we are allowed to explore them. We have given ourselves permission to do that. And I think that that is a catalyst point for what may very well feel like a black renaissance in filmmaking. It is just a determination by a collective of storytellers to say, I actually am in charge of and have full agency over my own stories and how I tell them
5: and when.
0: And this is truly amazing that this is your first film ever. This is really accomplished. Are you working on anything next?
2: Yes. And we we are working on our next film with Lionsgate, which we also wrote called Rapture. Um, We are moving into pre-production eminently. And all we can say about that film is that it's about the weaponization of religion and the sudden disappearance of millions of people around the globe. We also wrote a television show called Inkwell that we just sold to HBO, HBO Max, uh, that we're really excited about. And we're excited about that partnership with HBO Max because they are uh, so supportive of who we are as storytellers and wanting to get Inkwell to the small screen in the way that we envision. Mm.
0: And what do you hope to say to audiences with this excursion into the past and the history of slave brutality? What do you hope to say to them in the present moment?
2: I hope to say to them that, we hope to say to them, that uh, there is always the potential for a collective psychopathy of a society to take hold and it can metastasize quite quickly and before you know it what you thought of is unimaginable is suddenly acceptable and as horrific and disgusting as the enslavement of other human beings is it happened before and anything can happen again
0: and what would you say are both the same and the different ideas and concepts each of you brought to this project individually? And if you ever disagreed, who won? <laughs> <laughs> That's
5: a very good question. That's a good question. That's a good question. And luckily, you know, we, we write what we direct. So most of... Those disagreements happen in the the privacy of our own home as we're writing Mm. Um, but we have a rule where we defer to the person who's most passionate and 99% of the time we can we can resolve conflict that way
2: yeah I mean you know it's it's with with if we're talking specifically about antebellum I think you know as a as a black American with a very specific uh, experience and it's quite personal to me Incredibly respectful about that experience and what I'm, you know, oh. <laughs> trying to say, you know, in terms of uh, of what it means to be black in America. Um, but we always engage in a a robust and healthy debate to get to a place.
0: Okay, well thank you so much both of you for calling into the show about this really exceptional film.
2: Oh, thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. Take care and be safe.
0: And Antebellum is screening online. And now we take the Arts Express over to the Sundance Film Festival for a double speak.
1: Sorry I'm late. How are you? Good Good. to see you, Emma. All right, so thank you all for having me back. So, Emma, when you came up to my office, I told you that I would investigate and let you know the results. Okay? Um, Tom and Ann may chime in, but I will be sharing the report with you. Okay? Okay. And I have my notes here, so I may look down from time to time. But uh, basically, can I can I just say one thing? Sure. Um, through this whole process, a lot of what Ben has had to research through your colleagues, um, th- there's a lot of sensitive material here, and um, this is this is very serious. And you know, Ben has done a a great job in in figuring out what it is that we need to do moving forward in, in, in this process. It's just that it's a very weighty issue. I agree. Okay, so going off what Tom was saying, I want you to know that whenever I'm asked to investigate these situations, I take them very seriously. Now, I spoke to a few of your colleagues, I looked at your written complaint as well as the attached text messages, okay? All right, so why don't we start by discussing the specific allegations? Okay, it's the document on top. Everybody have it? Yeah. First, your claim that Peter cornered you in the kitchen, blocked your exit, and asked you about sleeping your way up in the company. Now Peter denies that this occurred. Right, well, um, I texted Elizabeth um, about it the same day, and I sent that to you in the email, and I think it should be in here somewhere. Emma, I'm sorry. We just can't prove that it happened the way you say it happened. But why would I send a message like that if if it didn't happen? I understand, but unfortunately, it's just not enough to definitively verify your claim. Okay, moving on to your allegation that Peter accosted you in the elevator. Now, he says he doesn't remember that happening. Well, isn't there footage, right? There are security cameras in the elevator, so. Yes, they have footage, but it's erased after six months. And as you waited so long to come forward, I'm afraid we just can't corroborate this allegation either. All right, let's talk about those instances where you say Peter would wait until everyone in the office left and then sit behind you in the studio while you worked, asking intimate questions. Peter has admitted that on occasion he spoke to you about subjects that may have made you feel uncomfortable. And he has acknowledged that it was inappropriate and confirmed it will never happen again. Well, that's a start. But Emma, you need to understand that this behavior does not constitute sexual harassment as defined in the company guidelines, or even federal law. Now... While well, Peter is a senior editor, I found that he does not, in fact, has never had any direct ability to affect the terms and conditions of your employment. He's not your supervisor. Well, he was supervising my work when I was working for him. If he wasn't my supervisor, who is?
4: Emma, as office manager, I'm always your supervisor, regardless of who you're working with on a day-to-day basis.
1: Okay. Next, the timing of the complaint. There's just no credible explanation for why it would take you a year and a half to report this ongoing behavior. What was I supposed to do? I'm
4: sorry. I should have reported it earlier.
1: So, to conclude, Emma, the behavior that we can corroborate is clearly inappropriate, but it's not illegal. So I'm making the following recommendation to Tom and Ann. Peter should be instructed to avoid any communication that would have the potential of making you feel uncomfortable. And the company will make every effort so that you will not have to work with Peter again in the future.
4: Unless it's necessary for a project.
1: Okay, well, that concludes the report on my end. Do you have any questions, Emma?
0: And those were scenes from Double Speak, a dramatic short feature directed by young first-time filmmaker Hazel McGibbon and based on her own very personal experience of reporting workplace sexual harassment. Arts Express caught up with McGibbon just before the premiere of Double Speak at Sundance. What's it like for you being part of Sundance and having your film Double Speak accepted at Sundance?
4: Um, it's it's such a privilege. To, um, Sundance is giving the film um, a platform, and it's about a it's about an issue that's super important to me. And I'm just really grateful that um, more people are going to see the film and hopefully um, feel for Emma, the main character, um, in her experience of of reporting harassment in the workplace. It's been a um, it's been an amazing experience to be part of the festival and to be part of the Sundance Institute, and um, it's. To the other films, um, I've seen the ones in my program, the shorts in my program, and they're all so amazing and so personal, um, and I really appreciate the being, being able to be a part of this and having having Sundance uh, champion my film in that way.
0: Is doublespeak autobiographical?
4: Yes, um, it's based on my own experience of, of reporting sexual harassment in the workplace, and actually much of the dialogue is lifted from a recording that I have of my own very similar meeting.
0: And was there any other reason workplace sexual harassment is a subject you wanted to both explore and expose in a film?
4: Um, well, this is my, it's my first film, um, and when writing the script and and deciding that this is what I wanted to make it about, I, I felt like I couldn't make another film about another topic before I made this one because it was an experience that dominated so much of my life um, at that time, so I felt like I really had to kind of exercise the, this, this out of my kind of creative imagination in order to be able to work on other films.
0: Now, one disturbing but not surprising element in your film is the lack of female support and protest for this victim. Why did you decide to make that choice and in some measure a conspiracy of silence as opposed to female solidarity?
4: um well because that was it, that was what my experience was of it um mm. and i felt like the the betrayal to me more than the men in the room um not not believing me or believing emma the the character in the film um it was harder to swallow the fact that a woman in a position of power would not support um and that was interesting to me like why um i wanted to kind of delve into the, the reasons behind that and sort of the gray area that exists in reporting sexual harassment
0: and what are your thoughts about this the absence of female solidarity in such uh, situations?
4: well, like I said it was it was tough for me to personally swallow and I hope that um, I hope that we're moving towards um, well, I just think I think most women have experienced that, so then have experienced harassment in some form. So then when they're in positions of power to not support other women um, is a bit difficult to me. But there's also it's where it's it's hard to put somebody else before yourself, I think in in that situation maybe. and um, I hope that that's changing and it's becoming more acceptable to stand up to other. To stand up for other women and support other women um, at maybe the expense of your own um, professional relationships.
0: And do you think that could be a problem as well for women in power politically that they would tend possibly to side more with men who have engaged them in having power than with women?
4: I hope not. I mean, <laughs> I hope, I, <laughs> I really hope not, but I think it's, it's just, it's a tough, it's, I think change is like incremental and hopefully more is happening, but um, I think historically it's, um, it's, it's definitely conflicting and difficult to make a decision to, to uh, risk, risk yourself um, to support someone else.
0: And please explain a little the significance of your choice of title, Double Speak.
4: Yeah, so double speak to me speaks to the way in which uh, language is used in that situation to undermine Emma's experience of sexual harassment. Um, sort of like the legalese and kind of coded language that they use um, doesn't acknowledge her lived experience and the flashbacks contradicting with the very dry language hopefully um, sort of gets to the complete opposite views that each party kind of has around this issue.
0: And what would you hope to convey to audiences with your film, to females on the one hand, and to males in the audience?
4: Um, I just hope that watching watching the film and sort of being able to feel what Emma feels and what I felt um, w- means that you're you want to be part of changing. Um, the sort of system that is set up to make it very difficult for women to have their experiences of harassment acknowledged in any meaningful way
0: and would there be a difference in what you might hope to convey to males versus females
4: i think the same thing like to me the the film hopefully humanizes that um and rather than seeing it as like a as just a statistic or just um some kind of legal language around sexual harassment, um, it feels more human, hopefully, um, and being able to watch how this experience, uh, affects her, um, I would hope would appeal to men and women in the same way.
0: And what is next for you in terms of projects and also themes you'd like to explore?
4: Yeah, so, um, I'm still in my thesis years of my MFA at Columbia, so I'm working on my thesis film, um. And I'm also working on a feature. Um, It's not a longer version of Double Speak, but I am still interested in exploring gender dynamics and kind of a more subtle dramas with less active female protagonists.
0: And do you feel your approach and perspective differs in any way from the traditional women's movement and feminist movement of the past century?
4: Um, I don't think so. I don't, I think it's all building on, building on what's come before and just figuring out how to, um, how to, in my own way, my own experience of, of, of the world and of gendered, um, gender dynamics is, would be different than, um, women who have come before me, but I think it's all building on the same thing and towards the same goal, which is for there to be parity and and equity um, between genders.
0: And will there be any other screenings elsewhere coming up?
4: Well, I I hope so, because I've actually never seen the film on a screen larger than my laptop, but um, Uh it remains to be seen with with COVID, especially in New York right now, and of course across the rest of the country.
0: And do you have a website where your work can be found?
4: I do, yeah. It's just it's com.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for calling into our show, Hazel. And I will get the word out this is quite a powerful film, even in its brief time.
4: Thank you so much for having me, and I really appreciate um, you taking the time and talking to me about the film.
0: Okay, and good luck at Sundance.
4: Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> Bye. Bye. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at the radio at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.
3: Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all.
0: Time. the world won't get no better
1: if we're just